0: Nothing's better than feeling comfortable in your own shoes. Maybe you're a parent raising a little rock star or a tech nomad working from anywhere. Allbirds wants you to be comfortable in your actual shoes, too. Their wool runners, pipers, and loungers are so cozy you might forget you're wearing them. And they're crafted from natural materials that tread lightly on our planet. So get comfortable in your shoes. Get to know the wool runners, pipers, and loungers at allbirds.com. That's A L L B I R D S.com.
1: Welcome to Unexplained Extra, with me, Richard McLean-Smith, where for the weeks in between episodes, we look at the stories that, for one reason or other, didn't make it into the show. In last week's episode, Coming to You Live, we learned briefly about the launch of the Telstar satellite, which, in July 1962, became the world's first active communication satellite, propelling us into a new media age of instantaneous global communication the satellite was just one of an extraordinary array of space-firsts for humanity, which had begun with the world's first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, in 1957, and was followed soon after by cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, becoming the first human in outer space in 1961. Two years later, Valentina Teroshkova became the first woman in space, and only five years after that, Neil Armstrong of NASA's Apollo 11 mission achieved the ultimate prize of becoming the first human to step foot on the moon. The moments symbolized by Gagarin and Armstrong are simply seismic achievements in the annals of human history, and however future historians choose to condense our present age, their names are unlikely to ever be excluded from the retelling of it. What is less well-known, however, Is the story of those other animals who helped them, and one in particular who became the first sentient creature to orbit the Earth. A stray dog plucked from the streets of Moscow that beat them all. This is her story. Though serious plans to put a human in space were circulating among rocket scientists in the early 20th century, it wasn't until the development of the V-2 rocket, also known as V2, during the Second World War, that it started to be considered as a genuine possibility. A team led by genius aerospace engineer Werner von Braun had developed the rocket for use by the military of Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. It isn't clear just how supportive von Braun had been of Hitler. However, there is little doubt that his interest in rockets had only ever been for use in space travel, remarking dryly when first hearing news of the V2's successful deployment in London that the rocket had worked perfectly well, with the exception of having landed on the wrong planet. In the aftermath of the defeat of the Third Reich and Hitler's German National Socialist Workers' Party, the United States and Soviet Union's governments, whose own forays into rocket technology lagged hopelessly behind von Braun's, soon found themselves in possession of a superior weapon they didn't understand. But who better to help decipher it than the scientists who built it themselves? Proving that all is indeed fair in love and war, in 1946, the two governments launched the two secret operations of Paperclip and so Aviakim that sought to take the best German science had to offer and put them to work on their own weapons development. The biggest catch of them all, von Braun, was adopted by the United States, with his programme manager, Helmut Groertrup, going the other way and placed under the watchful eye of Soviet rocket engineer Sergei Korolev. Though Korolev realised almost immediately the potential that their newly acquired rocket technology offered for space exploration. The Stalin-led Communist Party, understandably rattled by the recent US deployment of the atomic bomb, preferred to focus their efforts on their use in the deployment of nuclear weapons. However, with the announcement in 1954 of the US Army and Navy's plan to launch the world's first artificial satellite, the space race was born. And though launching a satellite would be the first prize, true mastery of the cosmos would only be demonstrated by the nation that could first put a human up there. Planning to launch someone into space was one thing. Doing it, however, was quite another matter entirely. The first issue was one of sheer durability. When the first V-2 rockets which travelled at 3,500 miles per hour, were launched. The fastest a human had ever travelled, relative to the Earth, was 394 miles per hour. To achieve orbital velocity, however, would require having to reach a speed somewhere closer to 17,000 miles per hour. It wasn't even known if the human body could withstand such a thing, and it was decided that there was only one way to find out. In the US, spearheaded by the US Army Air Corps, Project Albert became the first in a series of experiments designed to test the physiological impact of space travel on the body. Being unwilling to risk the lives of human test subjects, they alighted on the use of rhesus monkeys for the task instead. And so it was that on 11th June 1948, at the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, Albert I became the first of what we might clumsily describe as an animal of higher learning, launched into the atmosphere in the name of scientific progress. The plan was to have Albert launched and returned to Earth safely, provided he survived the flight, via a parachute linked to a detachable compartment of the rocket's nose cone. An ECG needle and respiration unit was stitched directly into his skin to monitor vital signs before he, with his body having been stretched out and arms strapped to his side, was placed head first into a cylindrical container, measuring roughly three foot by one foot in size, and then installed into the nose cone of a modified F-2 rocket. To give them the best chance of achieving some useful results from the experiment, the scientists anaesthetized Albert 45 minutes before the flight in order to prevent him from waking up and dying of shock during takeoff, then promptly launched him at thousands of miles an hour into the air. Due to a slight malfunction and premature burnout, the rocket only reached 37 miles in height before the nose cone detached, sending Albert hurtling back down toward the Earth at terminal velocity. A further malfunction prevented the parachute from opening until the device was only 25,000 feet above the Earth's surface, by which point the sheer speed of the vehicle rendered the parachute completely useless. Seconds later, the nose cone containing Albert was obliterated on impact with the desert sands. There was no chance of survival, though it was later suggested that due to the cramped conditions in the nose cone, Albert had in fact already suffocated, some time before takeoff. The following year, Albert II became the first monkey in space after his rocket made it beyond the 62 mile high Karman line, commonly considered the boundary between the Earth's atmosphere and outer space. Albert II was propelled to roughly 83 miles above the Earth before another parachute malfunction cost him his life, too. In the Soviet Union, it was decided instead to use dogs for the purpose of space research, due in part to the abundance of strays roaming the streets of Moscow. Stray dogs also had the added bonus of hardy and resilient natures, built up through a lifetime of survival on the often harsh and unforgiving streets. In 1950, a kennel was built at the USSR Air Force's Institute of Aviation Medicine in Moscow, and soon after filled with hapless canines, looking out with concerned curiosity at the strange new world they had found themselves in, oblivious to the horrors that were shortly to come. The institute, led by Dr. Vladimir Yazdowski, had the sole purpose of training the dogs for spaceflight, and the criteria was simple. Suitable candidates had to be small, weighing between 13 to 16 pounds, and between 18 months and six years in age. It was also important that the dogs had light fur, so their movements could be more easily tracked on film. Lastly, in the main, Only female dogs were considered due to the difficulties of attaching the specially designed sanitary devices required for journeying in the rockets to males. First, the dogs were put through a series of endurance tests, beginning with measuring their ability to withstand prolonged confinement. This involved little more than being placed in a restraining suit and locked inside a small box for four hours at a time. Next, they would be placed in centrifuge machines and propelled at speeds subjecting them to the forces of gravity five times above the norm, as they might experience during a rocket takeoff. Further tests were then conducted on how well the dogs fared under weightlessness and extremes of atmospheric pressure, before finally they would be placed in simulations of the cacophonous and violent conditions of takeoff to see if they could handle the stress of it. With testing completed, the dogs were divided into three distinct personality groups, from even-tempered to restless and sluggish, which in turn would help to decide if they were best suited to being strictly rocket dogs, meaning they would only ever be used in short test flights, or if they would be elevated to the status of satellite dogs, dogs that were considered strong enough to survive in space. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T E L A D O C dot com slash unexplained podcast. In the winter of 1950, Dr. Yazdovsky was informed by Sergei Korolev that the first biological launches would take place the following summer. The time had come to select the dogs for it with a launch date of 22 July 1951 confirmed, two dogs named Tsigan and Detsik emerged as leading candidates to withstand the rigours of the flight. By this point, the US had conducted five monkey-led biological space test flights, and all of them had resulted in the death of the test subject. And so it was, in the early hours of July 22nd, at the Kapustin-Yar rocket launch site, located 75 miles to the east of Stalingrad, that Sigan and Detzik were placed in their oxygenated flight capsule and after receiving a pat on the head by Dr. Yazdovsky, were sealed in and loaded into the nose of the Soviet R-1 rocket. A number of scientists, party member dignitaries and military personnel gathered to watch as the rocket took off, all waiting with bated breath to observe the fate of the two dogs. Moments later, a small tubular object was spotted high up in the sky, tumbling through the air at speed with no sign of a parachute. The crowd gasped in horror as the object crashed into the ground in a sudden blaze of light. But then, something else appeared, this time conical in shape, falling through the sky before being suddenly slowed down by a vast parachute ballooning open from behind it. Yazdovsky raced the nearest jeep and sped off in the direction of the cone that had now landed a few miles away. Bursting open the hatch moments later, he found the two dogs a little shaken but otherwise unharmed, staring up at him with their tongues wagging and panting hard. Sigan and Detsik had become the first animals of their kind ever to survive a rocket flight. Sadly, however, Detsik's participation in the space program would be short-lived when on her second flight the following week, in tandem with another dog named Lisa, their capsule parachute didn't deploy. On hearing the news, Anatoly Blagonravov, another leading Soviet space scientist of the time, released Zigan from the program and adopted her as his pet. Over the next two months, a total of nine dogs flew on six flights, but only five of them would survive the experiments. But over the next few years, focus again turned toward the manufacture of ever more powerful rockets. And though the space dog program continued to provide useful information, there were no plans to do anything more sophisticated than what had previously been achieved. All that changed, however, when on the 4th of October, 1957, the Soviet Union stunned the world by announcing the successful launch of Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite. Nikita Khrushchev, the first secretary of the Communist Party, was so flattered by the global response to the achievement that he suggested the party capitalise on the attention by launching a second satellite on the anniversary of the Great October Socialist Revolution that was due to take place just over a month later, on November the 7th. Sergei Korolov, equally caught up in the excitement of it all, had a better idea. Why not launch a dog with it too? and become the first nation to put a living creature into orbit. With the stakes now significantly higher, training at the kennel was intensified accordingly. Where before the dogs were assessed on their ability to withstand four hours in a confined space, now they had to endure 20 days. Only 10 dogs successfully passed the test, which were then whittled down to six, before finally one candidate emerged above all others, a small white mongrel named Albina. However, since Albina had already flown two missions and had just given birth to a litter of puppies, the team decided that she had already done enough. And so the next best candidate was chosen, a two-year-old husky mix, weighing no more than 13 pounds, with a distinctive white line running down the middle of her black-furred face, called Kudryavka, or Little Curly. Shortly after her selection, however, the team became fond of her distinctive bark, and so she was given the name Laika instead, which translates loosely to Barker in Russian. With less than two weeks to go to the launch, Dr. Yazdowski's team set about preparing Leica's body for the momentous flight. To be able to record her blood pressure, her carotid artery was pulled from out of the neck and her skin cut in such a way as to allow the artery to remain on the outside of her body. It would then be compressed periodically by an inflated rubber ball in order to take the measurement. Silver electrodes one fifth of an inch in diameter were then inserted just beneath her skin to monitor her heart, with the connecting wires also under the skin being threaded along her back and emerging on the outside of both sides of her spine. By 27th of October, news of Laika's impending mission was beginning to filter around the world. Later that afternoon, Laika captured the hearts of the nation when she was heard barking in response to questions from a reporter from Radio Moscow. But few were aware of the implications of the mission, for this was not a two-way trip. Realising she had only days to live, Dr. Yazdovsky took Leica home to visit his family, where she played with his children for a number of hours. The following day, she was placed on a flight to the Baikonur Cosmodrome, a remote spaceport located in the South Kazakhstan desert. At 10am on the morning of October 31st, Laika was taken for a walk, then afterwards had her wounds, still raw from the insertion of the electrodes, coated in iodine. Twelve sensors in total were applied to her body and her sanitation device fitted before being strapped into her vest and harness. At 2 p.m., food was placed in the feeding device, designed to release only one load to last as long as would be required. After which, Leica was placed into the rocket capsule, in between two large cushions. Calmly, she lay down on her front paws and watched the people in white coats as they lowered the heat shield into place above her. Finally, they sealed up the capsule, leaving its one porthole window located just above her head. The capture was then in turn fixed into place at the very top of an R-7 rocket and left for three days while Laika's vital signs were monitored. For the next 72 hours, she looked up with the same quizzical expression whenever a white-coated human peered in through the porthole window until finally the moment had arrived. At 5.30 a.m. Moscow time, on Sunday, 3rd of November, 1957, Laika, along with the Sputnik 2 satellite, was blasted into space. Human beings start to experience severe pain and hearing loss at 140 decibels. Inside her capsule, Laika would have endured something closer to 200 decibels. This, coupled with the stress of enduring five times the force of gravity, sent her heart rate racing to 260 bpm, three times the norm, and her breathing also quickened to four times the usual amount. Eight minutes later, having in that time travelled from naught to 17,500 miles per hour, Laika reached the Carman line Only a few minutes after that, having reached the orbiting height of 140 miles above the Earth, the nose cone detached, and the first telemetry signals were received at mission control. Leica was alive and floating in space, the first living creature of Earth in orbit. The capsule would eventually settle, travelling at a speed of 5 miles per second as it made its first complete orbit of the globe in roughly 103 minutes. However, with the capsule only travelling across Soviet airspace for 15 minutes of that circuit, they had only that window of time to access data, and unbeknownst to the rest of the world, it had become quickly apparent that something inside the capsule was drastically wrong. Later that day, on November 3rd, putting aside any diplomatic differences the front page of the New York Times triumphantly hailed Soviet Fires New Satellite Carrying Dog. Articles released the following day even went as far as to suggest that Laika could even be recovered from the flight and brought safely back to Earth. And articles from as late as the 7th of November indicated that Dr. Yazdovsky's team was still receiving signs of life from the dog. But soon with journalists noting that Laika was no longer being mentioned in official communications. The sad truth was beginning to dawn, that she had in fact been dead for four days, suffocated by a defect in the capsule that allowed the temperature inside to soar above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Just after midnight on April the 14th, 1958, a series of UFO sightings were reported along the east coast of the United States. As was documented by Paul Dixon, in Sputnik, The Shock of the Century, a bluish-white object had been seen travelling across the sky at lightning speed before suddenly turning red and separating into several smaller objects. What had in fact been witnessed was the re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere of the capsule carrying the Sputnik 2 satellite and the dead body of Laika before its eventual disintegration. Three years later, on the 12th of April, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the second animal to orbit the Earth. Scientist Oleg Gatsenko, who had worked on the Laika launch, would later muse that the more time passed, the more he was sorry about her death, and that we didn't learn enough from the mission to justify it. And yet within this statement lie deeper, complex, and often troubling questions about these types of experiments. Some will argue that no animal should ever be sacrificed or forced to endure such suffering, that only consenting human volunteers Or synthetic means should be used to collect the necessary information others might argue however that if we are to go into space if we desire that if we want to know more about what is out there or even if one day humanity might even need to escape planet Earth that the suffering brought on these animals was a terrible but necessary price to pay and this is a complicated thing To know that that is the price, but to do it anyway, is as equally human as to reject it entirely. In any case, regardless of what you believe, there is perhaps one thing that we can all agree on. That whatever benefit comes of our experiments in space, let it be known that we will owe it, not only to the likes of Gagarin, Teroshkova and Armstrong, but also to Albert, Tzigan, and Detsik. And of course, to Leica. If you enjoy listening to Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are massively appreciated. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. Feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or on Twitter at unexplainedpod. And Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplained. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products.